What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is, with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. 
Also back in the booth is Mr. Aaron Peterson. I, I'm mad at you for this, but <laughs> thanks for having me back. Our month of French films continues with a look at Louis Malle's Black Moon, a surreal experimental fairy tale from 1975 that stars Catherine Harrison as Lily, a young woman who seems to be on the run from something and who we follow as strange things happen to her. We are going to attempt to unravel the film as we go along. If you don't want anything spoiled, not that I think we can spoil anything, just go ahead and turn off the podcast, come back after you've experienced Black Moon for yourself. So, Kat, when was the first time you saw the movie and what did you think? You always ask this, like, you expect people to know the exact point in time. I do. (laughs) It's all just years, Mike. Come on, don't you have that Bogdanovich journal with the dates and times I I saw this movie? thing i've never done that sorry <laughs> i don't do it either i don't do it either i don't know i've seen it a while back obviously you know i love the fairy tales i especially the really perverse ones and i do love a bit of louis Mal as well but i love this film although we're going to try and discuss this i couldn't even tell you why <laughs> i'm like yeah i'll totally come on and talk about this film that i've never been able to explain yeah why not Aaron, I have a feeling that this is your first time seeing this one. Oh, yeah, and it was a dandy. The thing was, when I'm when I'm watching it, it was not a film where I I detested it or anything like that. It wasn't that. It was just so, what is happening? How deep is this going that I'm just not getting? I mean, I get the kind of Alice in Wonderland vibe, but overall, I just felt like it, it ended up being a Seinfeld. It was just a movie about nothing by the end. To me, I mean, that's how it hit me. And I would go and I, and I read like a couple of other people's reviews because I'm like, what are they seeing that I'm not seeing? Because a few of them were like three stars and four stars. And I'm a critic. I appreciate other critics. I still don't get it. It's one of those where I'm just going to have to say I just didn't get it. This was one of those movies that was uh, new for me as well. I heard a podcast about this probably 12 years ago and the guys on there were completely flummoxed so you know what am i doing i'm I'm flexing my old muscles i'm just like oh man if these guys can't figure it out i'm sure i'll be able to get in there you know we've talked about all these crazy surrealist films on here i can do it i i i know i can it's not that i don't know what the hell's going on but it's definitely not straightforward it presents you with a lot of interesting ideas, and I'm not sure how much of it works or not, but I'm excited to talk about it. That's for sure. Oh, good. Well, I can convince you to love it without understanding it then, because that's been my relationship with this film. I mean, I don't need to understand it. it it's not a prerequisite. It- I have like a certain relationship with these films, as you know, Mike. So obviously we did commentary for Valerie in A Week of Wonders, which is surrealistic fairy tale. And the way that I experience them, I don't tend to like to intellectualize them. And this is a film that you could be fixated on every detail. Like, what does this mean? There is like quite a lot of heavy symbolism in there, but I have always resisted intellectualizing those films because I don't know. I experience them in a different way. Like I'm quite sensory with film anyway. I'm more about feeling a film and I like a lot of fantasy and color and texture and things like that. So it's more of a, I guess, a visceral reaction. But with these, I tend to try and not 
overanalyze them because I think that spoils them. I think there is a lot of like symbolism in this, but you're not supposed to sit there trying to read it. My theory on the film is one, it's a coming of age story, which a lot of fairy tales are, which Valerie is, and it's about sex. And that's all you need to know because Marl was the fucking master of sex, you know, and in, in, even in, within the new wave, the lovers is like one of my favorite films of all time. So groundbreaking. It's about sex. It's about puberty. It's about what Angela Carter said about the fairy tale in actually, I quoted this essay yesterday in a totally unrelated thing, but she said off when she was asked, why did you write the bloody chamber? She said, well, I always thought fairy tales were about pubertal rites and, uh, sacrificial virgin martyrs and phallic symbols. And a lot of fairy tales were about sexuality, like you look at Red Riding Hood. And this basically is, if you take out like the talking fucking unicorn, the naked kids running around, Joe D'Alessandro and everyone called Lily. Like, if you, if you part that to one side, this is like Valerie, a coming of age story of a woman, a young woman crossing over into adulthood. And I think that's all you need to do, know to like, and like to just really appreciate how fucking weird it is. I love this sort of nonsense. So it's like, <laughs> you know, but I think you can. It's one of those films that you, you know, if you don't let go of that, it could drive you nuts because there's just like so, and so much of this symbolism is like really kind of obvious, like the serpent and the animals and stuff. And I think, you know, too many people get caught up on that where this is a feeling film. This comes into films like Barofchak's Fairy Child. They're feeling films. Um, and Marl, when he did sexuality, it was always perverse and taboo in a way as well, which I obviously appreciate. So, yeah, it's just a very dirty fairy tale. That's very understandable. I mean, it very much seems like a, a young girl's burgeoning sexuality with the, the women being attacked by men, with uh, all the breastfeeding going on, which <laughs> that's some that's that's some something like there's there's a lot of I think of that. It's a projection of her fear, like, you know, like... Everything she's terrified of. Yeah, she keeps saying she can't see it, and you think, is she gaslighting her? Or I know we're slightly jumping ahead, because my cousin introduced the flop, but I do think that that fear, that men and women thing that it starts with is more Catherine Harris, Harrison's Lily's projection of, like, a fear that she's coming of age. That's just, again, how I read it. Those are people like over the years of like, can you explain this film to me? And I'm like, no. Well, no, I, I think you can explain it. I do think that is the explanation. It seems, I just, I think even in a surrealist form, for me personally, it doesn't, it doesn't work in that way. It doesn't mean that I don't see that what they're going for and I get the idea behind it. I just, for me personally, I don't think it clicked. But I'm glad it did for you. I mean, that's always these kinds of movies. That's what happens. Some people will connect and some people won't. When it comes to the characters, there's Catherine Harrison, and her name is Lily. There's Joe D'Alessandro, and his name is what we're going to call Brother Lily. And then there's his sister, played by Alexander Stewart, and we're going to call her Sister Lily. And then there's Therese Giza. Is that how you would say it? She will be referred to as the old lady. So we 
pretty much just have four main characters, but there are a lot of side characters in here. We mentioned soldiers. We opened the film with Catherine Lily uh, driving down the road and taking out a badger. I really appreciate that first shot of the film. At first, I didn't even think that it was a badger. I thought it was a haystack in the distance because the film is very dim at the beginning. I love that it's all shot in natural sunlight, that we've got Sven Nickfist as the DOP, and he just, I mean, he's one of the best that there ever was. And using the natural light, and so much of this is in twilight or overcast, that it just adds this atmosphere to the whole film. It took me a minute to realize that she was in drag, that she's wearing a fedora and all of her hair is pulled up. And she's got an overcoat on. She almost looks like a detective. Why is she in drag? Well, she's trying to hide her sexuality because there is a civil war happening between men and women. And that doesn't come to the fore too much more after these opening scenes. But you can hear the sound of the war between them going on throughout so much of this movie. I read one review and they were talking about, oh, yeah, there's this thunder. And I was like... I don't think that that's thunder. I think that's the sound of the war that's happening. I think that it's always going on in the distance. In her subconscious. Sound in this is absolutely incredible, though. And I'd never noticed this until I started actually making notes for this. There's no soundtrack, really. It's animal noises and fighting and these grunts. And it's like Werner Herzog's jungle where the birds are screaming and the plants are in agony. Like the whole thing is like that. And it's really remarkable because the only really real music you hear is when she plays the piano and the children sing. Uh, There's like no soundtrack apart from just this this sound of agony all the way all the way through it and also those kids that are kind of demonic as well so their laughter is like slightly off it's not joyful in any way just think oh my god it's those naked kids again but it goes back to what i was saying about the sensory like all of these films especially in the 70s it was like a very specific tradition that you suddenly just got adult fairy tales appearing everywhere and harrison I I can never get over the fact that she was fucking Rex Harrison's uh, granddaughter because she was in images. She was in like these some of these really subversive films, and she was also in Demi's The Pied Piper, which was a film that traumatized me as a kid. I don't know if either of you two have seen it, but there's a scene in it where rats come out of a wedding cake, and for some reason it showed on BBC Two over the holidays, mate. And that was the one thing that stuck in my mind. I thought it was a horror film. For years, I didn't know it was like Jack Demi's Pie Piper. She's in this. But there's like this real tradition around the 70s, not just Jack Demi, but Barofchek and all the Czech films that we talk about. The fairy tale suddenly went very surreal and, and very adult, I think. And so it is very much in that that same sort of tradition, although Marl wasn't really a kind of genre director or, or anything like that. Interestingly, his uh, new wave stablemate, Chabrol, made an Alice in Wonderland a few years after this as well, which is just as fucking weird. It's got Sylvia Cristal locked in this weird house. 
So I think a lot of these films just came around because filmmakers could explore things like gender and they could explore things like, you know, coming of age and sexuality in this like much more surreal way. A lot of the Czech one, that's all Valerie's about really, isn't it? It's about a girl sort of finding her sexuality. Um, but I really appreciate the science. Like, I was just like, this is actually amazing. This is the way that like this has been like an architecture, I suppose. It's not even a soundtrack, just every little noise in it. And it's really disconcert. It would be interesting seeing this one on a big screen, like where you're getting it louder, because some of it does throw you off. You're like, well, what is that? What's that screeching? Or like, <laughs> and, and it just gives everything like really this unsettling tone. And it also kind of starts like those 70s sci-fis, like no blade of grass or something. So it totally throws you off. You think you're going to be in a dystopian, that other one that we did, the... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What was it last August? At the Hotel Ozone. Yeah. Yeah. Like that sort of thing. It reminded me a little bit of Seeds of Man. Yeah. Seeds of Man actually is another one that does that kind of surreal, weird Adam and Eve themes, isn't it? I want some, some of what they were taking. You know, as she's going through and she's running through men attacking women and the snake, and I feel like some of this stuff is pretty on the nose with what they're trying to allude to. The camera work is so fixated on, I don't know, long shots of insects and animals and snakes and that whatever the hell that unicorn was, that it kind of... It, it puts you in a, in a mindset to where you're already kind of like, all right, where's this going? And not in the positive way, at least for me, like as I'm watching it. It doesn't have to go anywhere. Either. I understand that, but it's also a film. It's still a film and, and I, it's not for everyone. And I think it's fair for people that don't enjoy it as much to explain why it didn't click for them. And that's, that's very much where I was at with it, which I get the imagery and I get, and I very much got, it's a woman's burgeoning sexuality just because of all the um, symbolism on the same token, I just don't think it gels as a film. I don't think it, it moves and flows and ebbs and flows from a narrative standpoint or any standpoint. And that's where I struggle with it. I can see it being herky jerky, especially once you get to the chateau, once she makes her way there. Which was Mal's house, actual house, wasn't it? Beautiful as well. well that'll save your budget right there. Boom. And I like that he realized that his house was just kind of strange. And he talked about all of the doors that are in every room. There's like multiple entrance ways. And he described in one interview about 
how you could call out, you know, where you're at and you'd call out and you wouldn't be able to tell where the other person is just because the weird sound that's in the house, the actual house itself, not even in the movie. We're talking about the real world. And he was just like, this is going to be the perfect place for me to do a movie. And so much of this was him. He had worked with the old lady before, and then he has a dream about her being in his bed and he makes sure to point out nothing sexual. She was just like part of my bed. I was like, okay. <laughs> he uses this idea of writing down his dreams. And he called this film basically like automatic writing. This was him just flowing with all of these things. He had that painting or tapestry, whatever that is, of the two people in the beheaded uh, hawk or eagle in his room so you see that that's actual it's beautiful though the whole house is just if i ever made any money that is the sort of house i want like out in the middle of nowhere in france somewhere like oh my god it's so gorgeous he does what cocteau does though with the fairy tale like i do really like fairy tale pomp as you know mike she had me on for um company of walls like i really love that artificial 80s fantasy look but um, he does what Cocteau does with the fairy tale in that um, the surroundings are like very mundane. So all the other, all the weird stuff that happens isn't really on screen apart from the unicorn, which I just, I just take that unicorn to mean phallus. <laughs> so, <I> mean, <laughs> but, but, and all the animals. Uh, it's interesting that a lot of these directors actually link animals to sex. Like Barofchek did it. Angela Carter did it. And I think that's one of the things I love about it because it's like such a big taboo, isn't it? Sort of bordering on bestiality. There's just so many animals in this film that are just linked to, to obviously to Lily, what are we call a Lily one, human Lily, <laughs> girl Lily, sort of linked to her thing. And he, he really does sort of just go all on out. But then this is a director who made Pretty Baby. If you, didn't he make that just after this? So, you know, you've got to think, what are you going to get from his, like, unconscious mind? A lot of metaphors. I mean, even the sheep, I would say, are probably, I don't know, all women like her that are pursuing their sexuality and they're all doing it the same way. And she's maybe going a different way, running against it. So she feels like they're chasing her to to have sex, maybe. I don't know. There's different ways you can view that, I'm sure. Those sheep are scary. When they start coming after her. Very creepy. And you've got the shepherd that's hanging there. It's like, oh, what is going on here? I have to say the most disturbing part of this whole film for me was that fucking millipede. Not the naked kids. The naked kids <laughs> creep me out, man. The naked kids were a little Those creepy. Those naked kids are like the creepiest kids and I love a creepy kid, but there's something about those kids that goes beyond like even Nicoletta Almi level of uh, creepy. <laughs> They're all kind of laughing. You just feel like they could just tear you apart in any minute and they'd love it. They'd just giggle the whole time. Who can kill a child? And that they're chasing around that pig that is taller than a lot of them. They represent young men because they're pigs. That's what I'm going with. Yeah, because they're all male. We haven't mentioned that. Yeah, they're all. Are they're they all male? male? Okay. I thought I that think they were. So. I started looked and they I think they are all made. I was trying to I'm keep not, like I'm not entirely neck up, sure though. But so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cuz there's one shot when they're having dinner where there's one that's got very long hair, but you see them from the back, but I'm like 
is that a boy or is that a girl? But I know some people let their kids have long hair. They're kind of like cherub looking, but then then not. Yeah, there's something grotesque about them. What a difference the 70s and European sexuality makes in film, right? Because if you tried to make that here, even then they would probably lose their minds. <laughs> oh, back to the millipede. I think we I cut you off with the millipede. Why why did that terrify you so much? Because it's so I'm all going- those legs and just how huge it was. Like especially the first time they show it, it's just against a rock. And you don't know what the scale is. So it looked like it was, I don't know, four feet long or something. It's really super thick. And then when they show it against her head, I was like, okay, it's not as big, but it's still fucking huge. And I think the Japanese use millipedes very well in their horror films. And I hadn't seen one in a long time and I wasn't expecting it to show up in this French film. And man, it just, yeah, it just goes on forever. Like you said, the noise that it makes is a little much. Yeah, like, because all the noises, like the animal noises, are kind of magnified. And yeah, it's just got this really weird sound. You just reminded me of that horrible film, Centipede Horror, then, Mike, where they're stuffing all those, that, that cat, is it category three film? I think it is. All these cent- horrible centipedes are coming up. <laughs> it just reminds me of that. So thank you. Don't like that film. There's a lot of accentuated noises in here. The suckling was. was- <laughs> Was something, but we're not there yet. But well, I mean, as soon as she gets to the house, there's that huge thing of milk. That glass is the the largest glass I've seen in forever, and she drinks out of that twice, and both times she has trouble reaching it. She's just struggling to reach this glass and then drinking it down, and both times there's a pig in the kitchen, and. At one point, it oinks a language at her, which is fantastic. It's just like, hey, that's mine. I know that this definitely had Alice in Wonderland influences, but when that pig shows up, for whatever reason, I was thinking of the, I think it's a pig in a baby bonnet that is in certain versions of uh, Alice in Wonderland. I think maybe the Svankmeyer version. And it's like, oh, wow. Okay, we are in definitely in Lewis Carroll territory here. That was very strange. Although I do think a lot of filmmakers put the Alice in Wonderland tag on to kind of justify any, <laughs> anything. Because the Chabrol one, he's got Alice in the title, but it's not actually anything to do with Alice in Wonderland. So it is, does seem to be that that sort of catch-all thing. Although Alice in Wonderland is absolutely wonderful, it is absolutely wonderful. But so much, but this is like so much more overtly and deliberately perverse. Can we talk about the breastfeeding? <laughs> we brought up the milk, so we got to talk more about it. Yeah, that's why it came into my the thing about the breastfeeding, and I think the thing that you got to make the sound as you talk about it. So that's really. I'm not going to make them. Mike can do the sound effects. <laughs> so I think the thing with breastfeed, like I've had five kids and breastfed them all, and people's reaction to breastfeeding in general is it is the filthiest, most disgusting thing on this planet. Like they don't want to see it. They find it incredibly, like just. Why would you do that? Like it makes people uncomfortable, especially men, because it's like, well, breasts actually have a biological function. They're not just this aesthetic thing. They're there for a reason, right? They're just others. And somehow having to see that 
it, it causes this, I don't know, some sort of explosion in their brain. They get very upset about it. And I know like now in recent years, but when my eldest, who's bloody 30 next month, he was born in 92 and people were still very anti-breastfeeding now. Now they're a bit more accepting of it, I think. I've seen like Facebook campaigns. So the way that he links like this coming of age theme with, um, which I thought was really interesting to rather than like her becoming the typical femme fatale, like Valerie, she, and I'm talking about Lily Catherine Harrison, she almost gets forced into this mother role. She becomes the the caretaker of the house. So it kind of skips the sex bit and she's pushed into this sort of social obligation. And part of that involves breastfeeding the old woman. And some of the reactions I've seen to that, people just think it's the most perverse disgusting thing they've ever seen i just think fair play louis mal because it's like so confrontational he could have easily just gone the 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 sort of had a seduced joe d'alessandro or something but he didn't i've never seen this done in a fucking film before i think it's really in your face like quite literally with the <laughs> and and make yeah, you like, did it you did it yeah <laughs> <laughs> can't not think of it now but but it is it is there to deliberately trigger people and make them uncomfortable people just find breastfeeding like the most perverse thing on the planet is it's so great i used to just flop it out and do it just to piss people off like i got asked to leave restaurants and stuff you know and people are very prudish about it strangers just coming up and saying do you have to do that you know do you have to look don't look. Yeah, it's but they're quite right. fine with, you know, a stripper in a bar or, you know, some woman in a live or someone's breastfeeding. It's, it's just such a con, I put you guys on the spot now, but, you know, it's such a controversial thing. I've got two kids, so it never bothered me at all. I would witness it quite often. And it was just like, okay. The weird thing is that some people find it oddly sexual in a way. And that's just, that's just odd to me. I mean, don't get me wrong. Hey, you're into whatever you're into. I'm not judging. I'm just. Hey, don't kink shame me. Yeah. Come on. I don't know if the difference is because I've had kids and therefore I've seen it in, in action, so to speak. But I just there's because this kind of mundane. Thing, it's a mother it? thing. I mean, to me, it makes me think of mothers. It doesn't make me think of anything like perverse. And I just some people, well, it's very sexual. It shouldn't be out in the open. Well, it's feeding a child. I mean, if you find that sexual, that's you. That's your right. In this movie, though, they they turn it around. This whole idea of the young girl breastfeeding the old lady. Both Sister Lily and I think regular Lily both breastfeed the old lady. And then we end with that amazing freeze frame of Lily getting ready to breastfeed the unicorn. That it's already, quote unquote, perverse, which it's not. And then that they twist it to make it perverse. To be like, okay, yeah, here's this young girl breastfeeding this old woman. That probably shouldn't happen, but... It feels more metaphorical again. It feels more more like... Now I'm ready to give life back or something. I don't know. Somewhere along those lines. Well, that the old lady is dead at one point and they bring her back. There's a lot of pagan symbolism in this. I don't know how, where Ma was of that, but you got like the literally the mother, the maiden and the crone. And it seems to be more like Aaron said, symbolic, this passing over of like to the maiden as she becomes the mother. It seems more like that. And when I said I was, it was perverse, it is perverse in a way that it challenges people, but I wouldn't say it's actually perverse, but it does tend to challenge people because they do read it as, 
is sexual in a way. Um, and the only other film I can think of where breastfeeding is used in that way is like Visit a Cube, which I also love. But in Visit a Cube, breastfeeding is this like symbolic thing for bringing a family together as well, even though that one's red is like entirely outrageous. Because you actually have a lactating actress in that one, which is a bold move by Takashi Miike. But it, but it is like more of this sort of pagan thing, I think, that he's gone for, which I really appreciate. This this whole cycle of of womanhood. I'm trying to think. Does the noise of the war go? I know we're way way ahead, but when she settles into the bed, does the noise of the war? Go? Yes, it goes. It it gets it gets very peaceful and restful. And the snake come, is the snake before that or after that? It's after that. It's at the foot of the bed, isn't it? When she gets, goes to get into the bed. So it is kind of almost like this kind of inevitability, this acceptance of herself, maybe. She's not at odds with everything anymore, but the whole, there is that other scene before that when she, she starts arguing with the old woman and they have this back and forth that goes on for about half an hour. And then they have this very intense scene that's almost like a seduction. It's like, is this a lesbian scene? Well, the old lady talks about her, which is funny. And she gets on the radio and is talking about her like, oh, yeah, she's a stupid cow and her nose is ugly and all these things. She has no bosoms. She has no bosoms. And then the old lady holds her and starts to speak telepathically to her. And I like that with the telepathy in this movie, you don't hear it. That is just... Lily responding to people. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So she responds to the old lady. She responds to Brother Lily. And the old woman starts accusing her of something to do with a watch, a gold watch. And Lily's like, no, no, I never stole that. And Okay, I think that you probably actually did because the old lady knows things that she shouldn't know. The old lady is talking on the radio about, oh yeah, she uh, ran into this uh, the the Civil War and this happened and this happened. It's like you have no business knowing these things, but she knows everything and is able to describe it to whoever this mysterious person on the other end of the radio is. And there's that, and then there's also the whole thing with the mirror and how the old lady uses the mirror as well. And at one point, I think Lily uses the mirror as well. So it's like this whole idea of reflection and looking at yourself and maybe even projection. But yeah, it was was that whole relationship between her and the old woman. I mean, you're right. It does go on forever, but it becomes such the heart of the story. It's like the brother and sister Lily – they're just kind of there doing their thing. They don't really interact with her that much. 
she really interacts with the old lady and the old lady interacts a little bit with her and she interacts with Humphrey mostly. And Humphrey, I don't think he's... You haven't introduced Humphrey Humphrey, yet, I don't think. <laughs> Humphrey, they describe him as a rat, but he doesn't look like a rat. He looks like Oh, he a, looked like a rat. Yeah, he looked like a rat. Well, he looked like a little kangaroo, almost. Like a New York like rat. A he's huge, though. It was a New and York the, rat. And the way he walked, he walked mostly on his back feet, and then he would occasionally like lift up and, and go down on his front feet. He was huge, man. That, was, that rat was amazing. Yeah, you're right. If he had a slice of pizza, then I'd say he was a New York rat. Yeah, I'm sure he has a friend as a Ninja Turtle. That thing is huge, man. And I like how they speak their own little language to each other, that it's this kind of backward, it almost sounded like German. It sort of sounds a bit, yeah, a bit like German, but it's not, is it? It's some sort of God knows what. Gibberish. G- yeah, gibberish. And, then, and there were moments in the movie when I'm watching it, whenever there's an interaction, especially with the old lady and Lily One, that I, I wondered, is this... Especially, you know, you've got the alarm clock scene where all the the clocks are going off and whatnot. And I'm like, is this, is she looking back at herself at this age? Is it a, you know, in terms of reflection, is, is she the old lady as well kind of thing looking back and now her clock is ticking? You know what I mean? Like a, a menopausal clock. I, you know, there are times where I'm just trying to think like, what exactly is this metaphor meaning? And that, that's one I came back to pretty frequently. So I, I want, I still wonder if the old lady was meant to actually be her. That's why she knew everything. That's why. Uh, she's a little bit gibberish because she was later in life and, you know, those kinds of things. She has that photo album that Lily looks at and it seems to go back and back and back in time. I think those are actual pictures of the actress when she was younger in there. But to your point, Aaron, I totally thought that, too. When she gets in the bed towards the end of the film, I was like, oh, now she's going to become the old lady. And when... Brother Lily and we sister Lily. We all become Lily. the old lady, though, Mike. Yeah, or or it's her, or it's her mother, or it's her grandmother. I mean, there's a couple different, you know, ways to look at it. Well, then also when Brother Lily and Sister Lily have their fight after he decapitates that bird, that fight is insane. That fight that is fight great. Is just- <laughs> but they they run off into the fog, and I was like, is this the beginning of the Civil War? Is this? Are we back at? the pre-beginning of the film is this now this is the origins of that civil war between men and women is brother lily and sister lily having it out here being a huge lynch fan i was just like oh okay don't forget time is also an element we might not be living in a linear world here might not my wife was like this movie reminds me of michigan j frog and i was like how does it remind you of that and she was talking about the whole thing of when Lily is upstairs looking out the window, Joe D'Alessandro, brother Lily, is down singing opera. And when she goes downstairs, he might still be there, but he's not singing anymore. And it's like, oh, okay, now I, I get where you're going, honey. And opera becomes such a big theme to it. Kat, you mentioned the kids singing uh, Tristan and Isolde at the uh, their little gathering towards the end of the film. But Joe D'Alessandro's down there quote-unquote singing opera all the time can, can we talk about little joe because i love this part in his career where he went off to europe and just turned up in so much weird shit he's he's mute in this isn't does he actually speak gibberish or is he totally mute but he's also in that other weird film where he's mute where he's the evil gardener i think it's called garden of evil seeds of evil where he looks like he's in a timothy hair advert with his shirt off and he's this evil gardener, but he was just in so much weird shit around this time. 
Um, and obviously with the speed, like they couldn't get, cause when he speaks, you get fresh with Frankenstein, don't you? <laughs> Modern day Europe was someone from Brooklyn wandering around as a gardener, <laughs> which I love, but it's just so nuts. But he just was in so much weird art stuff. And he worked with Borovchak in Lamarge as well, and which is a beautiful film. I don't think he gets enough credit, old D'Alessandro. No, people remember him for his Warhol stuff. And it's like, no, he was in so much more. Yeah. And they only ever seemed to ask him about his Warhol stuff. I want to know what it was like working in Europe. I've been trying to do an interview with him forever because we're quote unquote friends on Facebook and just never get a response. Not even for this one. (laughs) That is a real shame. I'd love to hear him talk about his Europe career, his career in Europe, because it's just there is that fixation on the Warhol thing, which is obviously a start. But then he went off and just, I wouldn't say made a sort of star of himself, but he certainly worked with some big guns over in Europe. And was in, in some really great stuff. I just love this period of his career. And he looks like he's so sort of ethereal. He's perfect for a role like this. The whole thing, too, is Maul cast him because he looked, to, to Maul anyway, he looked like the uh, male version of Alexander Stewart. Which he kind of does. Yeah, I can see that. He's kind of got that. that feminine look about him as he's not entirely masculine, Joe D'Alessandro. Well, it's like he's not entirely masculine, she's not entirely feminine, so they, with both of them being called Lily, it's like they're halves of the same person, and there might even be more than one of each of them. There might be one that sings opera and one that doesn't, because at one point, uh, Lily, Lily One, is interacting with Sister Lily in one part of the house, and then she goes into the stables, and there she is again. It's like... Okay, you know, of course, linearity is not the biggest thing, but it's like, okay, there might be more than one of her. Who knows? Well, maybe all those little kids eventually turn into lilies. It's like a whole factory of them. Or it's the the theory of impending children, and it's just, it terrifies you, because it does. Yeah, and they're all there eating, and they they it's so... I don't want to say graphic, but they just spend so much time on that meat that they're carving up. I'm like, okay. I mean, they've got a lot of animals to choose from, and the animals don't necessarily seem too happy about it. At one point when Lily One's in uh, the old lady's bedroom, they cut to a shot outside, and it's just all those turkeys and sheep. And you talked about the sound and just how fucking loud those sheep are. My God. It's very unnerving. Especially with the child nudity, because I think a lot of people find that kind of awkward, don't they? I mean, having five kids, our house basically was that when they were growing up, just five naked, feral kids. I remember taking my kid to some ballet class and there was a naked kid running around. Some posh woman came in and said, why is this naked child running around? Put some clothes on it. It's just the whole thing is really confrontational, isn't it? But obviously France in the 70s as well. If you see those pictures of Jane Fonda and Roger Vadine at home, there seems to be a lot of that naked French kids running around thing going on. Stuart was actually going out with Maul at this point. So that casting was was pretty natural for him as well. It's kind of what, like you were saying, Aaron, like, oh, uh, here's my house. Here's my girlfriend. It makes it a lot easier to finance a movie if you don't have to have a ton of upfront costs. Do we know how 
Catherine Harrison got involved with this. I don't. I don't know how she got involved, but she's great in it. And apparently she was only 16 at the time when she was making this. Yeah, because she, she worked with Robert Altman and then Demi and then she did this. I didn't realize she died in 2018, which is really sad because she wasn't that old. She's only 59. And she was in a ton of, of projects. So it's kind of sad there wasn't much more made of her passing, you know. Yeah, I never heard like a word about it. It was only because I was researching the film and I thought, oh, I wonder what Catherine Harrison's doing these days. And then realized she died a few years ago, but never heard a peep about it. Although she is is an actress, I guess she never really had like that same profile. I probably remember her the most because she's in a film called Eat the Rich. I don't know if either of you two seen it. Yeah, with Lemmy. and Was it it in the 80s? 1987. Yeah, I remember that one. Kind of a really cool thing at the time. And uh, yeah, she was in that. So she never seemed to really take these conventional, like Rex Harrison, he was like Mr. Hollywood. She seemed to take these really weird independent projects. So, but but it's still shame that nobody mentioned her or I I didn't see any obituaries or anything. If they did, it was very mild, probably. But she's an interesting presence. Someone so young as well yeah she gets to be a little much at times just with her screaming and yelling she's really the only person that talks a lot in english um and it took me a long time to find out that this film was made in english and french basically at the same time they shot it um i think everything was mos i think this is all post dub but Maul even gave it an english title he didn't give it it's not called Luna Noir. It is just Black Moon. There is no French title to this. And that he then immediately, you know, dubbed it with English and with French. And I think he actually preferred the English version. So I was, you know, Mr. Purist, right? I'm like, oh, I will only watch the French version. It's like, no, you idiot. I will only watch Spaghetti Westerns in their original Italian. Yeah, fuck you. I've only ever seen this in English, actually. I think they have a version dubbed in French on the Criterion disc, but really it's just like, that's... Yeah, because of course they fucking do. (laughs) But it's the anomaly, it's not the the regular version. Yeah, I've never... You saying this, this is like a revelation to me, because I've never encountered a French version of this. I just assumed it was weirdly made for... um, an english-speaking market i mean why was that like a commercial thing i guess demi was doing quite well in english speaking with his weird fairy tales easier to sell in his home country or it's very french though isn't it it's very very french was french but you have two english-speaking actors with Catherine harrison and joe d'alessandro and then you've got even though to your point joe doesn't speak but you've got your main character speaking in her native language and then maul was saying that this was sold to the U.S. and England, but they never actually played it in England. It never had an English release. They were still trying to understand what it was about. You'd think the sort of London Soho art crowd would have embraced it. Because there was some pretty wild, I mean, a moral tale showed here and, you know, some some pretty wild films showed here in the 70s in these little art Soho theatres. Always blows my mind when I see things that actually got released here, especially considering the BBFC. For a wider release, I don't know whether it would have passed, obviously, because of the breastfeeding and that. This was like 70s Britain. 
they were so strict then, even then. But there was like a way they could get round it in London where you could exhibit something with a license from the local council so they would get away with showing things that would never make it to a mainstream theatre. And I'm surprised that it never got shown because it seems totally for that kind of audience. And some of the critics here were quite welcoming of this stuff as well. Mike, you mentioned the Criterion Edition. When I went and looked at that or, or for that, it looks like a very bare bones release. I mean, unless I missed something, there's like one short feature and then the two, the French and the English versions. And I think that was like about it. Yeah. Just that little, I couldn't interview. find anyone who would, who would stake their professional career on. You know, when you hear here criterion, if you're going to spend $30 or whatever it is for a criterion, you expect a lot of backstory. I mean, that's the whole, to me, the appeal of criterion is to get all that background. And there's, there was nothing that I saw. And I just, I was kind of surprised it got a criterion edition. I had it on bootleg for ages, but then they did a British set, which was, who would you put that out? Like a whole mole set, which I still haven't opened. <laughs> I still haven't opened. I thought, should I open it for the podcast? Uh, but the Criterion one was ridiculous money to import, and I thought, I'm not spending that. So it's $30 there, but you have postage on there and import fees and everything. Oh, it's just silly. It's just silly. You're paying like £45 for one Blu-ray. I can buy my own talking rat for that. So, But you'd think they would have done more. But I guess it's a difficult... I want to talk about Marl, actually, as someone is part of the French New Wave. Because I have like a bit of a problem with the New Wave. I, I'm really not into Goddard. Like I know he has his thing. I fucking can't stand Goddard bros. And I can't stand auteur theory. And I just can't stand that... I become Pauline Kale as I age because I can see now why she was rallying against the over intellectualization. Yeah, like of a film. She was really rallying against that at the time because it just became really fucking pretentious. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I can handle Truffaut. He's okay. But the ones that I'm attracted to in that era that are totally blocked out of the kind of Goddard bros, the real sort of I am a cinephile gang. Oh, Roger Vadim, you know, because he was too commercial. When Vadim, who I fucking love, really revolutionized sex in film, but he, they, they don't talk about him. Chabrol, they quickly kicked out when they suspected he was making commercial films. And Marl, they totally ignore. When The Lovers, again, was like a sexual revolution. That film is so incredible and so beautiful. And so adult when it comes to talking about sexual relationships. And so many films came after it. I think the French always had a really good handle on, I particularly love French romance, especially from the 60s and 70s, because there's a maturity to it that you don't see in like Hollywood or even British. But there's just a maturity there to talking about how complicated relationships are. But Mo, I guess, doesn't get his due in a way because he's not included in the 
I like these intellectual directors because I can write about how clever I am, Cleb. That's my theory on it. It's it's less the films themselves, but by giving people auteur theory and cahier de cinema and all this theory, some people just use it as an exercise to go, oh, look at me. I'm so clever. It's, it, I'm not saying it's necessarily Goddard's fault. I don't connect with him at all. I find him really fucking pretentious. And plus... It's a long-running theme now on this podcast of all the Eastern European directors he fucked up on can. <laughs> See, that year, all the people who didn't get their film shown because of fucking him. So I feel like Mal, he gets pushed out and um, because he, he was really difficult to classify and he, he wasn't part of the new wave in that way. He was doing his own thing. He was already working on films like assistant director and stuff when they came along. But there is this sort of acceptable French, you get it with Italian cinema as well, like the acceptable directors and the ones we're never going to talk about. Um, And I just think it's a real shame because he made such interesting films, especially when it came to sexuality. They've embraced Rivette for some reason, though. That I don't get. They've embraced Rivette, but Marl is like, no, I don't know, too much filth, maybe. <laughs> I don't know what it is. And I think one of the things, too, in, in the interview that uh, we'll have in a little bit with uh, Hugo Frey, the thing about Maul is that he was, you couldn't put him in a box. Yeah, and that's what I love about him, though. The last time we talked about him, we were talking about Elevator to the Gallows, which is very much a classic film noir. And then you get totally different. Right. Oh, yeah. And then he does documentaries. He does these very surrealist things. I mean, uh, Zazie in the Metro is maybe as close as you get to this. The film before this, you've got a Nazi sympathizer. I mean, he's all over. And then he comes to America, does his thing over here. So yeah, the French were just like, what, who, what is this? I don't understand this guy. You never know what he's going to do next. And I'm like, same with Chabrol though. I mean, Chabrol makes what two, three, four quote unquote new wave films. And then he starts making spy thrillers and murder mysteries and quote unquote commercial cinema and genre cinema, which is like the biggest crime according to Kayez, to like one hand they're like we're elevating genre cinema but it's like only these like four directors <laughs> like only Hitchcock Losey <laughs> and and the whole thing is just nonsense really because it means it means that people like Louis Mal there there isn't really a lot and it was the same with Chabrol there isn't a really a lot of critical stuff written on them most of the stuff you can find on Chabrol, like in his 60s period from Kyer, is like, oh my God, he's abandoned us, you know, pig. <laughs> but, but nothing about the, you know, the more commercial side of it. So I, I have real problems with the French New Wave as a movement. I think it's come to mean something it never was as well. It's become overblown and, and, you know, I, I really don't like these other directors being ignored. When do you ever hear Roger Vadim? talked about and interestingly vadim and mal both worked on spirits of the dead with fellini which i love so it's like they they were like the the shutouts <laughs> when you mentioned uh alice or the last escapade the chabral version of alice in wonderland and i was watching that and just to see some of the parallels, especially when it comes to the windows and the use of windows. And you've got a lot of Sylvia Christel looking out of a window and seeing the landscape and so much of, of, uh, 
uh, Black Moon is Lily looking out the window, and I was saying how when she gets down to the ground floor, it's a different outside than it is upstairs, or at least different things are happening, I should say. So, like, the opera is gone. Now it's just Joe is doing gardening. I never caught, and I think this was kind of BS, maybe? Somebody was saying that when he's pruning that tree, that the tree is bleeding, but I just saw the blood on the ground as being from the soldier. You get the woman soldier and Lily follows the blood back to her. And that woman soldier just laying there dead, being eaten by what's this? Something's eating her. And I'm trying to remember what there's an animal. Oh, it's a chicken on top of her eating her. And I'm just like, no, it's like the war is finally making incursions into this little bit of paradise. It feels very much this idea of this lonely chateau like it's this island away from the war, but then now things are starting to intrude. Now the the soldiers are actually coming there, and I'm like, who killed this soldier? Because she's there with a, a machine gun, and I thought for sure that Lily was going to pick up that machine gun and just start blasting. Yeah, there is some similarities between that and the Shabroa, and that also, just for anyone who was, hasn't seen it, and it's not a spoiler, it's basically a woman goes to this weird house in the middle of nowhere, and then she's just trying to get out of this house. That's all I'll say about it. But there are, like, the way it plays with time, you're never sure in that one, like, you know, when is this happening in it? And again, it's like very, for Chabrol, very experimental. He didn't tend to experiment to that that degree. But, you know, maybe he was spurred on by Black Moon. <laughs> Who knows? Because it is very... And it comes after this one, uh, the Chabrol 177. But it, it, there are similarities there. Uh, and that one has interesting things to say about life and death. And her husband? Her husband's such a baby. Where are you leaving me? I don't get this. And, the, yeah, there's some interesting things that are going on in there. When the her... Uh, windshield gets blown out and then the windshield's fixed the next day but then there's a snail where that blowout happened i was just like that's kind of interesting yeah it's a it's a fascinating one it was very tough to find for a long time i'm not sure if it's easier to find now no i don't think that one's ever added like a, a decent release but again it's chabrol he's been so slow to come to disc because and same with Vadim, like we've had all of about three of his films. <laughs> like it's so sad because there's a whole side of French cinema that's completely neglected outside of like this approved directors club. And it just frustrates me because I think what, why Black Moon was chosen over a lot of the other mole films as well is fascinates me because that wouldn't seem to come to disc quite quickly when others have been slower. So it's, yeah, he makes these decisions. But it's a shame because you don't often hear a lot about um, about Louis Moll or Chabrol. And even Jacques Demi's only recently started to get some because he was considered too genre before. Didn't he did what? Uh, donkey Skin. Donkey Skin, thank you. And that one. Yeah, the fairy tale about the, the guy trying to fuck his own daughter, Catherine Deneuve. His wife dies and he's like, well, I'm just going to marry you. Fuck you. <laughs> and that is an actual fairy tale. That's what I mean. These traditional fairy tales were kind of perverse. You had like 
Original Cinderella had people cutting their toes off to fit the slipper. Hansel and Gretel's about cannibalism. Little Red Riding Hood's got loads of sex in it. You've got Bluebeard about a serial killer. <laughs> you know, you've, you've got Donkey Skin, which is literally about a king who wants to marry his own daughter and to escape him. She disguises herself in this donkey skin. And Jack Demi did his film version is wonderful. We've got Dauphine Serig as the like fairy godmother. It's just the best thing ever. But it's so perverse, so, so perverse. Well, and you talked about his Pied Piper as well, which is. Oh my God, it's just so hor- horrific when I was a kid. I said, what was that horror film? You didn't pay me for getting rid of the rats? Okay, well, I'm just going to steal all your children. Fuck you. That's <laughs> really horrific. Oh. But beautiful, seeing it as an adult again, like when I eventually found out what it was again, uh, I I was just like, this is remarkable. Why the hell was this on for kids? This is quite scary. I found it interesting that Joyce Boonwell was, uh, did a little bit of the dialogue work for Black Moon because I definitely, I mean, the name Boonwell, right? And then when uh, Lily picks up the the Christmas cheese. I didn't know that Christmas cheese was a thing, but picks up the Christmas cheese and there are all those fucking ants all over it. I'm just like, wow, that so reminds me of the, the hand with all the ants from Unshen Andalu. I'm like, okay, we're just, we're going for it. No breaks. We're just going to go as surreal as we possibly can. There isn't a lot of dialogue in this film though, is there? Like for the first 15 minutes, there's no dialogue at all. Like no one speaks at all. You just get grunts and machine guns and people screaming and animals and stuff and then like you said a lot of the the they talk in this sort of psychic way and you only hear one side of the conversation and it almost pays out like a silent film in parts which takes me back to what we were saying when we did a go to island of love with daniel bird and daniel was talking about the kind of more silent cinema like silent era cinema influences on that it does play out with like absolutely no dialogue and i think there is like this this more english language for want of a better word expectation to have everything just everything explained and whereas in like say so i come from like a euro cult background one of my specialties where dialogue is practically meaningless in a lot of films you know and uh, and and so I've never really needed it as much. It's um it's like what Pete Toombs called and Cathal Toehill called in a uh, a Moral Tales their book. They they talked about more what I don't want to say Western cinema, but you know what I mean, English language cinema being more like this Hitchcockian logic, very logic based, everything being tightly plotted. Whereas a lot of European stuff, especially from the seventies, was more dream logic. It's totally in that, I think, because I've just been exposed to so much of that that it just doesn't, it just washes over me. <laughs> it's just like, I'll accept the Christmas cheese. I'll accept, it just, I just accept it. I'm just like, I don't need it. But I do, I did find some people, you know, this, this kind of, what does it mean? Well, maybe it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> maybe it means what you want it to mean, you know? That's the gift of cinema. Well, I know that uh, Aaron's wife was ready to divorce him after sitting through this. Mine, mine was giving me some uh, askew glances as well. It, it was not a, a welcome film in my house. <laughs> my wife was pretty open too. I mean, she's very, very open to different kinds of movies, but she was 
she got about halfway through it and she's like, okay, well, I'm just going to sit over here and look fiercely at you. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm just, I, I was not, I'm not a fan of it either. I, although I do think there's some good ideas at play and I like some of the imagery and I like some of metaphors that are at play. I do, I do think that, did Maul just use every animal he had? I mean, I, he lived at this house, so maybe there was a lot of animals nearby and he's just like, we got to find somewhere for the sheep. We got to find somewhere for the, the chicken. We got to find somewhere for the pig. We got to find them all. We're going to find them a spot. She was not happy. And at one point I had to, because I didn't understand a certain section or I wanted to understand it a little bit more and I can't remember which section it was, but so I went and I rewound it and rewound it. It's streaming, but I moved it back and, uh, and she just looked at me like, what are you doing? We're almost to the end. What are you doing? Not <laughs> one more second. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> See, I've never been on projection booth of anybody who's had a counter point, like a different thing for us. This is my first. This is interesting. Like, usually I'm on with, like, someone like Heather Drain, who's just totally as loopy as I am. So it's like, Heather's on the dream trip as well. <laughs> and there, that might be a factor. Like, I, one of my least favorite film styles is anything where, where dreamlike is, is a is implied. Now, I don't mind fairy tales. Though. Yeah, fairy tales are different. It's my talk. Yeah. If, if I see a movie where someone breaks into it, they have a dream in the middle and it's a fake out. It just drives me nuts. Cause I just, to me, it's always, not always nine times out of 10. It's lazy. It's just lazy plotting. It's just a screenplay that's written. Well, no, they're trying to jar you. They're trying to shake you up. They're trying to, yeah. very rarely does it actually feed the, the depth of the script. And it's just more about, we're going to take you, we're going to make you think this is those kinds of dream sequence. We're going to make you think this is happening, but really it's a fake out. Ha ha. It didn't really happen. That person didn't really die. And I can't, that was just drive me insane. Have we gone into Bobby Ewing now? Cause I think that's just an American no, there, thing. There's a ton of films that have the same concept, that whole same idea where they just, they, they just beat the dream sequence to death. I, I love fairy tales and fantasy. Dreamscape's an exception. <laughs> I don't know why. Oh my god, I love it. See, I'm the opposite. I absolutely love it. And anything to do with like animals and pagan and just anything. So to me, it's like, I mean, I did a, a mention this actually last year on Patreon when I did a whole. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details fantasy season is one of my favorites so it's really fascinating to actually meet someone who doesn't like it <laughs> eh, just personal preference and and it's usually it really really is usually the the fake out moments and 
you where they're trying to just make you think a character passed away or they they made you think a character did something horrible or did something noble or whatever whatever the case is and then they wake up shockingly and we're supposed to oh that's just what they were thinking oh goody <laughs> it just it just feels i just never have liked that that use of dreams what about divorce italian style then not to get off the point have you seen that one Mm-mm. Uh, maybe I didn't when I was younger. Mastriani wants to fuck his new bar cousin and he can't get divorced, so the whole thing is him dreaming of killing his wife. That is a masterpiece. (laughs) He, like, kills her in various ways. In fact, there's that Rex Harrison one, isn't there, where he, talking to the Harrisons, what's that called, where he's so angry at his wife, he's a conductor, and and he's conducting this orchestra, but he keeps having these, like, mental fantasies about killing her or finding her out. I can't remember what it's called. See, now, if you're, if you're talking about a psychological break and it's a, it, it's akin to the character, that makes more sense. I'm talking when they use it to just try to jar the audience off or throw the audience off or that it's just – it's meant for a shock value or it's meant to uh, – ha-ha, I gotcha. Well, no, you didn't. And it didn't add anything to the script at all. <laughs> like, didn't add anything to the movie at all. Yeah, usually those are followed by the characters sitting bolt straight up in bed. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Huh? That's Bobby Ewing syndrome. But it's abused. It's a, that whole idea, though, is abused in film. How was he fucking dead two years and then he appeared in the shower? It's like, for fuck's sake. But for our younger listeners, Kat is referring to the TV show Dallas, where a character was killed off. But then they unkilled him off by making, yeah, one or two seasons completely a dream sequence. So <laughs> that was one of the most bizarre things. They just reset the show in the middle of the show. Yeah, I'm not on board with, with that at all. I, I'm not on board with that at all. That, that, even that, that did feel like a betrayal. It's like, sorry, plebs, you've wasted the last two years watching this. Uh, it didn't mean anything. <laughs> it's basically all seven years of Lost, you know. Oh, snap. See, there were only six, but it felt like seven. That's what Mike's saying. <laughs> all right, guys, let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and play an interview with Hugo Frey, the author of the French film director's book on Louis Mal, And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, 
you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at fathermalone.com and on iTunes. You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way, while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much? Then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider. Now available on your favorite podcast app or at thehollywoodoutsider.com. Even before we start talking about Louis Mall, I uh, wanted to know a little bit more about you and how you got into academia. Well, in some ways, very conventional in other ways, unconventional. Basically, straight from school and then no career planning at all. Just an ordinary kid. I actually loved film from 80s video culture, just like <laughs> all the famous people who become filmmakers and not academics. And then effectively just did a humanities history degree, lived in France as, as a student exchange, and then didn't know what to do, did some master course and then stayed in universities and then ended up in the world of effectively French history first. And then since I always love film, writing about French film as my academic project. And then more recently, graphic novels and comic strips. I had to do all the political history to justify my entry into academia and move to film comics. So pretty conventional, but from very humble, non-Oxbridge-y background. So why Louis Malle? What attracted you to his work? I was very interested in Second World War France, Nazi occupation France. And as you know, his two major films one of the late 80s in the period I was growing up in a way, and then the one from the 70s, Au revoir les enfants and La Con Lucienne, two major films about wartime France. My interests were in that era and how France was remembering and processing the memories of the occupation 
and I'd done my PhD on how historians had looked at those kind of questions in the 1950s. And I was just exhausted with the historians and wanted to work on the, the filmmaker. So I guess I had a personal interest and passion in that era and those problems. And then Mal, he's the man <laughs> for those kind of questions. What was the first Louis Mal film that you saw? I can't fully remember, which is a good Louis Mal type answer. I think I definitely know I saw Milu on May in the cinema. And that's the one I would have seen first in the cinema in the UK. But I think I probably saw glimpses of quite a few of them on British TV because they were broadcast, I think, on Channel 4 or BBC 2 around the time of the release of Au Revoir Les Enfants in, you know, everywhere. I was a school kid studying French and I think my parents thought I should watch them to help my French. And I think I saw glimpses of a few of them on TV, possibly Heart Murmur, the Souffleur Coeur, and possibly Au Revoir Les Enfants. What was it about Maul's work that attracted you and compelled you when you were writing your book? There were three things that I found interesting. I found it interesting that hardly anybody else was writing about him or taking an interest and that he was a little bit dismissed compared to all the fashion for people studying Godard and Truffaut. So I like the idea that he was this famous, big, I knew he was important and famous and did these cool and interesting films that I kind of liked and that were important to me because of the themes. And then I was also kind of intrigued that nobody was talking about him very much, even though he was very important. The wartime issues were interesting. and. I guess as I started researching them, the start, I like, you know, I guess I like the style that he was in some ways conventional, but in other ways, very unconventional. The first film, Lift to the Scaffold, is such a good film with the Miles Davis soundtrack. And he starts there with that kind of crime thriller, tragedy, Paris in the late 50s glamour. And then that ends with Au revoir les enfants, his childhood and the occupation. And I kind of found them interesting because they were powerful narratives and they intrigued me. They were powerful narratives and I couldn't really understand why everybody else was interested in the more experimental French films when you had this storyteller who was doing interesting things. I'm an outsider looking at Mal's work. He seems to move through so many different genres but I'm curious, what are the themes that you found that he likes to explore through his work? I don't know if I like exploring them or not, but I have a duty studying him. One of the themes that he talks about in, in the interviews is often his films start with somebody at the point of crisis and then the crisis gets worse. I suppose I quite found that quite interesting. That's true of Black Moon. We begin in an absolutely sudden moment of crisis refugee boy girl on the run in a car driving through a strange sci-fi war so it's, it's typical but he sees that as part of a lot of his dramas and then I suppose the other theme that he uses to explain these things is his interest in that point of crisis being also to do with how teenagers emerge into the adult world and experience loss of innocence or the 
disappointment of the realization that the world around them is not such a beautiful place at all. And then the theme of witnessing, witnessing and history, important themes. And I guess I was interested in those in the Holocaust film Au Revoir Les Enfants, that's his life story told many, many years later. The dynamic of him processing that story, taking years to tell the story, how he composes the autobiography. And then the key scene in that film is around this kind of witnessing of terrible Nazi attack, the other child being taken away and the he and his other fellow school boys not being able to the kind of powerlessness while witnessing so I've not done any psychoanalysis of myself on any of this as a, as a historian we avoid uh, we avoid any kind of questioning other than trying to find out more Black Moon is so much a psychological profile and and just I know he compared it to free writing the way that he put the film together. You know, how do you see that one fitting into his work? You talked a little bit about a crisis, but as far as the history and things like that, I, I'm curious how you view Black Moon. There's lots to talk about because I wrote the book about him a long time ago now, actually nearly 20 years ago with the research, although I'm still very on and off, very interested so I've only seen the film twice, actually, once on a French video copy that I watched in the UK in black and white because it couldn't do the colour transfer. And then I watched it streaming last weekend. So on, on a certain level, hardly anybody's seen the film. It didn't get widely released. You know, it's a kind of complete oddity in a way in that it's not got a strong narrative like a lot of things to do with Mal, it's ambiguous. So, you know, it'd be common to say it's not got a strong narrative and that it's this kind of take on fantasy, science fiction, unicorns, talking mice, totally dreamlike occurrences in a manor house and no resolution. And as you say, he himself explains it as a kind of dream film. This is a long and waffling answer to say that it's very unusual in his work and it's it's generally seen as a minor film with Au revoir les enfants la con lucienne lift to the scaffold as the kind of classic works how we might look at it even though it's a dream film and we can talk about that and it's kind of methods and problems of watching it moment to say where does it fit i had kind of two or three answers to put to you really in some ways for me it's quite interesting to look at it Epilogue to Lacan Lucienne, the film he made right before. The actress Therese Giza, the grandmother in Lacan Lucienne, and the core elderly figure trapped in the dreamlike beds, tormenting the, the young girl and dominating a lot of the narrative at Black Moon. She's in both films and could almost be seen as playing the same character. So for your listeners, Lacan Lucien is his famous film about a wartime collaborator, also a teenager, young boy. It's a huge hit. It's extremely controversial and it's famous for, for not passing judgment on this young boy. And Giza, who's in Black Moon, plays the, the grandmother of a Jewish girl in hiding, who the young collaborator ends up in, you know, broadly romantic relationship with while intimidating 
And that the very end of Lacan Lucien sees Lucien, the collaborator, his girlfriend, France, Jewish girl, and the grandmother, played by Giza, running into the French countryside. And for 10 or 20 minutes, they do nothing. They play cards. They frolic around in the grass. There are long shots of birds and animals. There are close-ups of the grass. And so for me, one way of looking at Black Moon is is to see it as this follow-up to those final scenes of Lacan Lucien with effectively the young teenage girl in Black Moon replaying Lucien. So I was just thinking about it through the week and what I wanted to say. I don't think anybody, you know, Mal has said things a little bit like that, but not as boldly as, as I'm suggesting it. It's interesting at the beginning of Black Moon, he he dresses his teenage character in that one in kind of 1930s clothes. She's wearing a kind of floppy hats. She's looking almost like a boy. So, you know, I'd be suggesting that she looks a little bit like a character in a similar film, Bertolucci's The Conformist, which is also about fascism. Anyway, all of which is to say, suddenly Lucien is alive, transposed into this new character, driving through exactly the same part of France. The roads that we see look almost the same. In Lacan Lucienne, we see the boy cycling along the roads. In this one, she's driving along in, a, I think, a Fiat car. And then she arrives. The grandmother figure is in the house again. A strange menage capture this time takes place in this like hidden location. And so, you know, not, not a particularly common reading of the film, I don't think, but the one that, that I felt I wanted to talk about first was that it is interesting that the end of Lacan Lucienne is so unusual and strong in that it goes from this quite pacey wartime melodrama to this slightly hippie countryside rural moment where and then the film just stops suddenly with a focus on Lucien lying in the grass saying he's been killed by the resistance. Mal makes Black Moon months after the finishing of that film and its release and all the controversy over it. And so maybe part of Mal's kind of dreamlike presentation is is a reprocessing of Lacan Lucien. I suppose one of the reasons why I'm saying that as well is that the central character in Black Moon played by Giza, her performance in Lacan Lucien is, is remarkable and she's... I think, you know, she's one of the things that stands out from Black Moon as still being interesting, despite some more, you know, critical remarks that I might make as well. You know, her performance in that is remarkable and still stands out as interesting. And and her performance in Lacan Lucien, oh, I've seen Lacan Lucien probably over 20 times because I teach on it. And so I've seen it many, many more times than Black Moon. And every time, you know, she's very much there in the background, but as a as a performance, I, I think it adds to that film, you know, hugely. And to the end of the film, I, I find it interesting as well. You were talking about the resistance and the war, and there's obviously a war in Black Moon, civil war between men and women. Then you've got the grandmother character on that radio. It's almost like she's trying to communicate across the front line or something. One of the other links that, that links the two films is Lacan Lucien begins with a radio broadcast about the Vichy propagandist and that's the the first part of that film we starts with a radio broadcast and the radio re, refigures in this one 
that struck me as a link between the two. On a technical level, it provides some kind of thematic link between the the narrative of the dream sequence in the house and the notion of the civil war going on, you know, violent military civil war between men and women going on that we see at the beginning of Black Moon. And so I guess the radio link establishes some kind of surrealistic cohesion between the two parts of the film. Was it all shot in the small's house? Lacan Lucien, no, but he was living and working there and it's shot in the same district of France. It is shot all in and around the, the same air parts of France. Lacan Lucien is filmed uh, not, not in the house, whereas Black Moon is filmed in his own private property. And I guess that's one of the other interesting reasons for watching the film. And my other reasons why we might find it interesting is like Mal scholars or Mal fans or just people interested in French cinema. I mean, it's a unique glimpse into the filmmaker's house. We don't always see that, that the house is presented in this particularly bizarre fashion. But I found that interesting last weekend to re-watch it for this first time and think, well, that's where he was sitting, coming back from work on Lacan Lucien. That's the, the family home. Let, let's see what the house looks like. It's, it's interesting. And in the film, the house, the way the house is shot and organised, it's, it's a kind of very powerful part of the film as well. I was just checking in the, the French biography. His, his ashes are scattered, you know, after a memorial service in, in Paris. You know, after he died, his ashes are scattered in, in the grounds of that property. So it's an interesting kind of heritage site, heritage film of Mal's life and times in a way. Was this his first English language film? And how do you see language affecting this? It was shot in French and English in parallel. I think I've read... And, you know, your viewers, listeners can correct me if it if this is wrong. I think he did the sound post-production and that the sound's a little bit off. So I'm not, funnily enough, the UK streaming edition is in French that I watched last weekend. He plays sound as secondary in the film and he wanted to emphasise the visual more. And I guess the, the issues of the sound in it and the two language editions are interesting. I guess the I've not seen the English English version. Catherine Harrison, the actress playing the young teenage girl on the run, central to the whole film. I guess she I don't know for sure. I guess she was overdubbed in French by a French dubbing. I've not heard her actual voice in the in the English edition. The more interesting thing was part of the conceit of the start of the film was that was a challenge to maybe make a silent movie. I suppose a resolution of those language editions is is the first 20 minutes or so have almost no spoken language at all. And there's, there's very, very little script, you know, from, as you know, from watching it recently too, there's, there's almost hardly any script through the film. It emerges a little bit more in the dream. It's an, the higher, entire film's a dream sequence, but the more obvious dream fantasy section in the house is there's there's very little spoken word there either i guess the surrealistic element he was he was trying to emphasize the the sweep and move of the images whether or not that's successful still i i don't know on the more critical side apart from the the challenges of the casting of Catherine harrison at such a young age 
is you know some of those some of those surrealist images look very dated and almost don't work anymore particularly the the central unicorn that looks like a donkey with a <laughs> with a cone on its head there are problems with the films film that we might come back to at the end but i guess it still works in its own terms but but elements of it look cliched and dated the cliched uses of the snake in particular, look look very dated and you know almost comic when I don't think they were meant to be. The, the unicorn is meant to be a kind of metaphor for the grandmother outside of the house. Apparently, when you cast aside at the fact it doesn't look too great, that works okay. Just to get back to the point that the sound in the film is is deemed secondary, and he's trying to make this big. Well, not to, you know, sort of intimate, surrealistic dream film where the visuals provided by Sven Nykist, who's the, the really big hot cameraman of the day, is, is doing a good job on the imagery. They always say don't work with children and animals. And here he is working with basically a child and thousands of animals, it looked like. The official biographer in France describes the house turning into a zoo and the animals being out of control. On the casting of Harrison, you know, this is the problematic element that I don't think would work. It is difficult. I was Googling to try and find any interviews with her. She sadly died recently, even though she can't, she wouldn't have been that old. She's British. There are no online interviews with her that I could find where she could talk about or give her side of the story of being a young actress you know, cast into this very domestic setting. Mal is in a relationship, semi-relationship with the other actress, Alexandra Stewart at the time. It's being filmed in his house. You know, he's he's a very careful filmmaker. So there is the nudity, although it's kept in a kind of decontextualized dream representation rather than, you know, he, he carefully avoids any of the 70s pornographic material that was floating around at the time but you know Mal's clever and so he knew what he was doing and he was careful on on those terms but looking back on it it is a problematic casting and I guess it's the her her positioning as his alter ego is an interesting question and then a lot of the film works, but then it introduces the kind of nudity and subtext of her potential sexual awakening around some of the crude Freudian sequences with the snake. I haven't read any contemporary reviews of Black Moon, but about a year ago, I was doing some writing about his 1970s film, Heart Murmur, and that got re-released in the States. And there's a very recent New Yorker review of Heart Murmur and you know the reviewers you know very clear that that film wouldn't get made anymore you know Mal's world's a world that's long gone on on those terms I think if you step aside from it there are lots of ways of looking at it one way is going with Mal himself and that this is high art and he's very careful and there's nothing wrong at all and you know, Harrison's, there's no documented problems with the film from Harrison's perspective. There's no testimony from Harrison that I can find. 
So that would be going with his view and that he's very empathetic towards his younger actors and that he's interested in exploring these kind of stories and topics. The other view is, you know, you've got up by this stage, I don't know quite how old he was, but, you know, a very experienced filmmaker who's made over 10 to 15 films, a global star, living in his house with with his then semi-partner, Stuart, former actress from his previous film, Giza, the whole gang, D'Alessandro rocking up from, from America, and in, in comes... Catherine Harrison into this world where where she really is the outsider as well. Apparently, from the the biog, it was Alexandra Stewart who knew Harrison's mother, and that's how the casting took place. It's the granddaughter of the the famous talking to the animals guy, isn't it? I guess a little bit of that rubbed off on her. He must have known. He he is a film buff. If if you look at the film critically and fairly. There are sufficient areas for it to be problematic, but then he's sufficiently professional, sufficiently clever at casting the whole narrative of this as a as a as a kind of surrealistic exercise. While I was watching it last week, I found it tiresome, worrying, and then when you you know preparing some thoughts on it today, I do find it an interesting film. I do worry about the the whole project. See it as kind of something historical from the seventies that that wouldn't be made today, and is problematic. I'm really sorry that there's no trace of Harrison's own perspectives on it. And then, having said that, Giza's performance that you know sits in the mind as I was thinking, the house and its presentation. The presentation of Harrison through the windows of the house and through the framing, the countryside, it's got a power of its own. It's not like every Lou Mal film. It has a power that's undeniable. And then it is interesting, the other elements. I love Lacan Lucien. Not many people will ever say, you know, be prepared to say that. A lot of people hate that film. I think it's very interesting and admirable film. As a kind of epilogue to Lacan Lucien, it's intrinsically interesting. And then the other elements that interesting around the whole mal question of this witnessing and trauma and his own experiences of the occupation. And as you say, the beginning of the film with a very brutal, probably one of the most brutal war sequences of, of visual violence that he depicts. So as an experiment in the further elaboration of that theme, it's very interesting and very powerful. The two direct sort of Second World War themes to pick up on are the obvious repeat point of it, anticipating Au revoir les enfants and the, the figure of it's, it's Lily in this film witnessing all this violence has strong echoes of Mal witnessing the, the raid on his school. In less widely distributed interviews, but public ones still, he also talked about the extreme violence at the end of the war in 45 that he witnessed when the so-called purge, or in French, Epiration, was taking place. And precisely that point, French male resistors and taggers on of the resistance brutalised and attacked French women who were accused of collaboration with German soldiers and you know, publicly humiliated you know, medieval scenes of 
you know, ritual humiliation of women, you know, as France is being liberated. And Mal talks about having seen some dreadful things in that period when he was a child as well, just, just a year after the Nazi aspects. And so the beginning of Black Moon is interesting in those terms as well, because it's precisely about male violence against women at the very beginning. That, you know, you wonder in his consciousness whether or not that that was coming out. He never made a film about it. I think he made some remarks about talking about making a film about that, but he he never got around to doing it. It's Giza's last film. She's an important European actress who I, you know, can't really elaborate on. I'm not a specialist but in, you know, the history of the acting craft, but she's an important figure. That dual role between the two films is is definitely significant. And then the general theme of his work is is magnified and it's it's interesting isn't it because the film is a small film that nobody's seen but it kind of magnifies and puts in the most disturbing terms the these issues of witness and power and the kind of young woman character or as i say dressed as a boy at the beginning running around in this state of complete semi-fear, trying to sort of negotiate the chaos around that figure. Apparently, he insisted on it being included in most retrospectives of his work. He liked it. I think he had problem. you know, the problem of editing it was, is, is noted. I'm not, I'm not a surrealism expert at all, but the whole film raises that whole technical problem of, you know, in automatic writing or sudden painting or very sudden writing you know from the brain to the paper you can't while he's trying to replicate that in film you you can't do it you know the whole thing's impossible really i mean he asserts in that this is a dream film it's like automatic writing but conceptually i i don't know my rational hats from my political history background (laughs) says yeah is that is that really possible in film because even if you go out with a camera with no script, you have the editing process. You know the raw, you know raw footage would be the nearest, wouldn't it? I guess raw footage. But even then, you'd have to edit it into some kind of beginning and middle and end. But I guess you have a beginning and end in automatic writing. But unless you are just showing crude raw footage with no editing, you can't really recreate that sudden surrealist jump. There's not really a score to Black Moon, but there's definitely a lot of music in it, especially when it comes to opera. I saw the the Wagner music at the end and the conclusion as a kind of plotting rap. I mean, it, it kind of signals that the film is high art, not 70s French porn. This is serious. It's about this dream world. It's a bit like Alice in Wonderland. Now we've got Wagner. And the, the end of the film where the, the brother and sisters end up in combat, you know, also kind of metaphorically links back to the wider war going on outside. And I quite like the I quite like the the final shot of the film replicates Lacan Lucienne and Truffaut with the kind of still photo of you know the topless Catherine Harrison. That's part of the highly problematic side. But preceding that, there's a kind of family party where there's the music and there's some kind of stage performance. 
And I found that interesting. And to some extent, that does anticipate some of the scenes in Au Revoir Les Enfants, where he includes the school group watching Charlie Chaplin films. The kind of group art moment is is interesting. I never thought about the unicorn being a double for the grandmother, but that makes a lot of sense, especially when you have the sister Lily and brother Lily characters. We've got doubles all through this. I think that just about works because the unicorn's outside and the grandmother never, or the elderly lady in the bed never, never moves out of the bed. And so the kind of Lily character's torment outside is the voices from the unicorn and inside is the controlling grandmother. Now, this is an interesting thing. Louis, Louis, Louis Mao always said viewers bring everything to his films. It's, it's to them. So, you know, I don't know if the grandmother's controlling or I'm just saying she is. I think she is. She's a dominant figure in that bed. I believe it's Sister Lily breastfeeds the grandmother and then Alice ends up breastfeeding the unicorn. Yeah, so that's the duplication. You get that in Lacan Lucien as well. Lucien watches people and then he copies them. That's quite interesting from a narrative progression point of view. And then it's interesting psychologically because people do copy each other. Nobody ever talks about that. It's, uh, it's something that I see sometimes in my observations, in my Louis Mal like observations of life. People do copy each other and, and not many people talk about that. You talked about the mall book that you wrote, but I'm curious what else you've written about. You, you mentioned graphic novels, but there was also, was it National French Cinema? Yeah, the, the other book on, on cinema is about not one director, but the whole kind of world of post-war cinema in France. And it's to do with the films and filmmakers who are more directly offering a patriotic nationalist subtext to their films. So actually, Louis Mal doesn't figure in it very much. People who don't figure in it very much, Mal and René, and they're, they're really very much out of it because they're not really doing that kind of cinema. What I wanted to do was kind of track through all of the kind of moments where French film and French patriotism aligned. And that was very, very taxing and hard work <laughs> compared to studying Louis Mal, which was much more fun in some ways. I don't know. Nobody else should ever. Not many people call studying Louis Mal fun, but it was more straightforward. A biographical approach, biographical and linear is a, is a lot easier to research than structural multiple. And it's gone okay, and it got good reviews on it. It took quite a long time to finish and publish. And it's interesting that there's, you know, I still think the world of film criticism picks up on directors and films more than thematic problems. I sort of finished that one about 10 years ago. I mean, basically, I tracked through thematically some kind of key themes. The first chapter is on film celebrating film. I kind of had a core film for each chapter. So in that one, I looked at Truffaut's Night for Day, which is around, you know, the kind of celebration of Truffaut as a director, but then also looked at the 100th anniversary of film in France and the kind of cinema as the home of France as the home of cinema kind of claims. Then I did a chapter on the kind of 60s and 70s films. This was a more fun chapter on like, what I call chic France. So the film, the kind of films that made France look glamorous 
and romantic, like Lelouch's A Man and a Woman. Again, is a film not many people write about, but that I quite like. So also very straightforward narrative and popular. And then what did we come to next? Then the whole anti-Americanism stuff and the kind of defense of French film against Hollywood. And then some history films where the resistance is celebrated. And then we got into more problematic areas of French colonialism, French anti-Semitism. And then on the the far right, the, the far right that remains popular in current day France has, has always had intrinsic interest in, in culture and film and film, you know, there are conservative right-wing film critics, you know, famous political, fi- famous film figures who gravitate more to the right than to the left. So I had a go at that, that nobody else also ever really talks about very much other, other than the actual people, you know, the, the figures themselves express their opinions still. So that was that one, and it was was much harder to complete and, and harder to do. How did you make the move to writing about graphic novels? In the background, I'd been interested in French comic strips from basically Tintin from childhood day. You know, I just always read Tintin. So I noticed that, you know, in, as, as I became a kind of, well, I guess I'm a professional historian, or I don't usually make that claim, some kind of professional historian. I started noticing some of the links with the kind of higher level politics and the people around Tintin, and then just thought, well, I'll have a, I'm interested in that. I don't know the American university system well enough, but it's quite challenging to get work and challenging to get publications and it kind of felt like the traditional political field was taken already by other people like four or five years older than me who, who were doing good things and like I'd never catch up. So I just thought I'd do something different. And then as you do that, the dominance of American graphic novels and the publishing world. I was always interested in American culture too, American literature. So, And I love Spiegel, yeah, Mouse is such an important book from my 1980s Mao era as well that, you know, Art Spiegelman's Mouse was so important and admired it so much. You know, the, the commercial need to work on American things, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't my mouse. And it's it's interesting, the two, Au revoir les enfants and Mouse come out at broadly the same time. They tell some similar stories through the different medium and of course, Mal himself witnessed the events himself, whereas Spiegelman is interviewing his father. And he's so clever because apart from the sequence with this you know, very terrible suicide of his mother, the presentation of the history is its so crafted in such a careful way. It's a fantastic work, really. What are you writing about now? I'm working with my Belgian colleague, Jan Batens on a book on 60s comics, but they're the kind of influence of the 60s comics on wider visual culture and graphic design. So when I when you invited me, I saw you'd done Flash Gordon as a recent podcast, so I quickly listened to some of your Flash Gordon podcast that I thought was very good. Those kind of 60s comics 
in France do the same thing as the Flash Gordon film that you were talking about, that they kind of re-riff on the 30s Flash Gordon serials and comics. So Barbarella being the, the famous example. That's what I'm working on at the moment. So superficially, much less problematic and difficult than Nazis and fascists. But nowadays, actually, probably just as problematic because of the, the representations. Professor Fry, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. No, thank you. I was really uh, very pleased to be asked because I'm always interested in Louis Mal. are back and we're talking about black moon and i don't know if we've made any sense of this movie or not uh how how close are we to understanding the assignment i don't care just watch it for the for the sex is what i say is there sex in here preferably without your wives because that seems to be a thing don't watch it with the wife i don't have a wife so i'm i'm fine well it never happened again (laughs) (laughs) well to glare at me when i'm like hey we're watching black moon again tonight that's right Come on, honey. To give you the contrast, when we did uh, Dr. Detroit, my wife was ecstatic about watching that one. So, <laughs> and there is a dream sequence in that one, but I let that one slide because it makes me laugh. Yeah, there's a good dream sequence in uh, Ghostbusters that was supposed to be yeah. not a dream sequence. <laughs> yeah, that was supposed to be real, right? Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I kept trying to figure out how Tristan and Isolde plays into this uh i'm not really up on my wagner uh operas so i was trying to read that story and just it wasn't getting me and i wasn't seeing anything about like sisters and brothers that are in love it sounds pretty though yeah it sounds very pretty and i was i don't i'm not sure what opera joe is supposed to be singing and i was wondering if that is tied into the opera later like his opera theme and really we didn't talk about the unicorn that much either i mean you mentioned how it's basically a giant phallic symbol but i think it talks with a woman's voice and it's also kind of confrontational in that it's sort of rude and insulting i feel like that comes from alice though doesn't it because everyone's really mean in alice they're really mean they they insult alice or they're rude to her or you know they infuriate her in some way or another and and it was like her exchanges with the unicorn and the old woman feel like Alice at the Mad Hatter's tea party where she's just getting really annoyed with this pointless conversation that's going on in the tea party and she can't get a straight answer out of anyone. Um, and, and the same with the accusations, that seems to come from Alice because Alice gets uh, like accused of various things, doesn't she, or mistaken for someone else. So I I do think that was more of a conscious effort to bring in because it's the only thing that is actually a quote unquote that and the talking rat. The only two things that are identifiably okay. This is a fairy tale (laughs) and the screaming flowers. Yeah, the yeah, the flowers, the flowers of death. Yeah. No, but it is like he, he kind of avoids a lot of that and just uses weird behavior instead. Or like the weird kids or the just the sheer amount of animals. 
it's like there's only those those three things. Maybe he thought I need to just have some things in here that are identifiably fantasy so people know what genre they're in. And it's the only other clear voice in the whole I mean, really clear voice in the whole movie. And I, I would say that it's really abstract in terms of male or female. I mean, I know it's it, it sounds like a, a, a woman, but it's a very deeper voiced woman. So it's almost like it could be either way. But that could be just me reading into it. Because by this, by that point, I was like, I'm just reading into everything at that point in the movie. That's why I said you have to just not. I, for me, these sort of films are pure pleasures. And, and so I've kind of cursed myself coming on here and being forced to try and explain it. Generally, I wouldn't. I love anything that's weird and kind of sensory in that way. So I just, I just use it as more of a like emotional exercise. And I, and I wouldn't try and sit there and analyze it because it is the sort of film that can become infuriating because every frame has some form of symbolism in it to the point where it does become like, oh my God, you know, what was the minipede and what, you know, why is that milk so big? <laughs> and it is like that. And I just think you just have to leave that at the door and just think, I mean, Valerie can be a bit like that as well. You see it more as a painting. You, you see it more as just a yeah, series I, of paintings. I, but then my, yeah, like a series of paintings. Um, but then that's my relationship with a lot of cinema anyway. It's like this very, I like a lot of colour or, or just surreal images. So that's just like my thing. And I tend to not like to try and analyse it too much. Unless there's something that's calling to be analysed. But weirdly, I never felt like analysing this one. Till I make you. No, you didn't make it. It's just you put it on the list and I thought that would be a challenge. Because I do usually, I'm quite lazy, I'll pick the ones on Mike's list that I know I can talk through in my sleep. And this is one that outside of a few minutes on Patreon with a bunch of other films, I've always resisted writing about or speaking about it in any depth. Because I just thought it's, it's, it's just one of these films I had a, like a very pure relationship with and I just... So, so I thought, no, I'm going to do, to do a challenge this year. I'm going to take something that's not easy. And now I'm with people that don't like it. <laughs> well, at least Aaron's not just like, this sucks. And you suck for liking <laughs> no, it's, it. It's, I just think it's funny. I try and very hard not to judge what other people like or don't like, but I, it didn't work for me for various reasons. Uh, but I think you can still, you can still appreciate some of the, the more artistic aspects of it. Even if it, I don't think it works as a film personally. This reminded me a little bit too of like um, Celine and Julie go boating. See, that's another one I really love. And another one that I wouldn't bother sitting and trying to dissect in that way. Because it's just, it's like this pure sort of meditation exercise for me to watch this sort of films. You know, it's just me though. I like shiny things and weird things. Stick anything in Technicolor, I'm just like, yeah, this is the most amazing thing ever. You know, I'm quite simple in that way. The most interesting thing about the unicorn for me is that when the unicorn gets up and leaves and it's like, yeah, I'll be back in 154 years, which is a lie because she's back later on. Yeah. But, uh, or you think it could have been 150. It might have been. That's true. That Alice, or sorry, Lily is like, hey, come back. I like talking with you. It's like, that's the only person that she actually has a conversation with the entire film. Well, she doesn't speak to anybody. Like the, wow, she speaks to them in her head, doesn't she? But she doesn't 
And then when the old woman talks out loud, it's this weird gibberish. Although the, I'm thinking more now. See, this is why you don't get dragged into these fucking conversations. The weird elements of German in the war, is that like a some something to do with the French resistance as well? It almost feels Mo like Because had a... this whole complicated relationship with the war where his friends went to the concentration camp and guess it was like quite traumatic for him living in nazi occupied france and stuff because thinking of it now um and it was something that aaron said earlier about them coming into the courtyard there's bits of that that kind of reminded me of sallow in the way and you know the courtyard at the end of sallow just these odd officers and that coming in and i don't know again probably reading too much into it but that whole war theme is that something to do with his own trauma her speaking on the radio, I was just like, and the radio, yeah. Like, are you giving updates to you know the your fellow resistance people or your fellow collaborators? And you know, obviously, those are two different words that mean very different things. And the radio is very war specific, isn't it? You know, especially for like 1970, you'd expect people to be making phone calls. They wouldn't be getting this crackly old radio out. So let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right. French Month continues with a look at Claire Denis' I Can't Sleep. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kat and Aaron. So, Aaron, what has been up with you, sir? Oh, uh, I have been doing a lot of podcasting. So, I, every week, do The Hollywood Outsider, which is a film and television podcast where we review movies and also have topics and conversations about film and television. It's available at thehollywoodoutsider.com. I also do a Hitchcock focused podcast where each month we look at a, a different movie of Alfred Hitchcock's and it's called presenting Hitchcock and is available on your podcast feeds. And then it's, it's also available at the Hollywood And then I do a couple TV focused podcasts, uh, the blacklist exposed and beyond Westworld. And cats, what's been happening with you? Talking of Chabrol arrow, uh, amazingly doing a couple of big Chabrol Blu-ray sets. So I managed to do commentaries on, Betty, Madame Bovary, and then I also did a, a liner essay, and this is all for the first set, but there's two of the sets I called Lies and Deceit, and uh, they're like mainly is 90s, late 80s, 90s stuff. They're both amazing sets, but I did liners on L'Enfer, which is being put out under its English title, Torment, but it is L'Enfer, which was obviously the not a remake, but it was the Henri George Clouseau unfinished script that he picked up. Also, I just did a commentary for this like really amazing 
new Korean thriller called Midnight, which is like this cat and mouse kind of serial killer thing. Like a cross between I Saw the Devil and the Spiral Staircase, that's what I'd call it, uh, which is coming out by Eureka. And that just, I was on, did a festival jewelry last year and that won Best Picture in that festival, Grimfest. So it's, that, that was kind of cool. And also you can get me on Patreon. I'm doing, I don't know why I thought this was a good idea, but monthly live commentaries in front of a Zoom audience. So you can find me on Catalinger's confessions of a cine slut and also i've got other stuff on there like essays video essays vlogs all sorts of stuff so that's me at the moment i'm recovering from the omicron so this is my first time out in public (laughs) (laughs) although i'm probably still contagious so you'll be glad you're sat over there Well, thanks so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. To inquire about advertising on the Projection Booth, email sales at advertisecast.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps Projection Booth take over the world. I'm